My name is Mike Tipton. I'm a professor of human and applied physiology at the Extreme Environments Laboratory at the University of Portsmouth. So at the Extreme Environments Laboratory, we look at the physiological responses of people going into extreme environments. That might be altitude, that might be heat, but particularly cold water immersion. And then we look at the selection, preparation and protection of people to go into those environments. That might be looking at the kind of equipment they're provided with, a life jacket, an immersion suit, or it might be the responses that you see when they go in and how you can protect against those responses. So I'm uh, a member of the Council of the RLI, just starting my second term, but before that I was on the Medical and Survival Committee, as it was named then, for 10 years. But going right back, um, I think the first piece of information that we fed into the RLI was 39 years ago. So next year I'll be celebrating my 40th anniversary at the same time that the RLI is celebrating their 200th. So worldwide there's about a thousand uh, immersion-related deaths a day. Um, that's probably an underestimation because a lot of them are occurring in low-income countries and don't really get reported. And remember that's deaths. That's not people who then go on to have a lifelong morbidity or a problem. So you can multiply that number between five and ten probably in terms of the impact drowning is having on individuals and communities. In the UK it's around about every 30 hours we lose someone and about a child every week or every week and a half. It's, it's, I'm pleased to say it's coming down a bit. So um, when we started in the area, it was almost um, 700 deaths, 750 deaths a year. Um, so that's dropped to about 400, um, about half at the coast and half um, inland. And that was the driver, really, that because a lot of those deaths are young people. Um, you know, over 40% of them are under the age of, of 15, 25% are very young. And that's such a loss of potential, uh, apart from being in itself, you know, a pretty upsetting statistic. So when I started in the area in um, the early 80s, it was still the perception that the major threat to be um, faced when you fell into cold water was hypothermia. And that probably originated with the Titanic uh, and in that situation it may well be that hypothermia did account for many of the uh, lives that were lost because the water was icy cold, flat calm, people were provided with life jackets. Um, however, I mean that perception of hypothermia persisted, uh, was um, reinforced during the Second World War with people on, on Carly floats. Um, but it was quite clear, looking at um, a combination of the statistics, uh, the anecdotal evidence, and the kind of work we were starting to do in the laboratory, that something much more rapid was claiming lives. I mean, just as an example, uh, the Home Office published a report in um, the late 1970s which showed that about 60% of those who drowned, drowned within a few feet of a safe refuge, and two-thirds of them were regarded as good swimmers. Now, if you know your physiology, you'll realise that um, people cannot become hypothermic in any water temperature in less than about 30 minutes. So if people are dying, good swimmers are dying within uh, a few metres of a safe refuge, uh, almost instantaneously on immersion, that's not hypothermia. 
And so we went on to explore what that was and did the necessary research and, and came up with uh, the initial responses. Now, those initial responses to cold water immersion, a gasp, hyperventilation, sudden increase in the workload of the heart, had been known about for some time, but they'd never been linked to the immersion deaths that we see in cold water. So we sat around, Frank Gold and I sat around in a room not much bigger than this one, trying to think what we might call it, and we called it cold shock, not because of the medical definition of shock, but because it's just a shocking experience. And we think then, looking at the um, annual immersion deaths, that about 60% of those that die, die very shortly after going into cold water, about 20% from hypothermia, and about 20% just before, during, or shortly after rescue, circumrescue collapse, that's in the UK. And that, of course, changed the perception. It changed what you should do in terms of provision of protection. It changed what you should do in terms of what to expect in terms of um, the medical support you would provide people that you take from the water, because now it's primarily drowning that is your problem, not so much hypothermia. So the driver for the cold shock response is a sudden fall in skin temperature. And about 0.18 millimetres below the surface of the skin, you have cold receptors. You've got four times more cold receptors than warm receptors, actually, in the skin. And that sudden drop in skin temperature that occurs when you go into cold, because cold water is so good at removing heat from the body, much better than cold air because of the thermal conductivity of water and its specific heat. So that means that your skin temperature plummets and you get a dynamic response from those cold receptors. So that's a big overshoot in their output and all of that information gets sent centrally and overwhelms the central nervous system. And then you respond with um, a, a fight or flight response. So that gasping that you get, that hyperventilation, that sudden increase in the workload of the heart, is actually your body saying, get me out of this, or I need to run away from this and get out of this. Of course, it's a totally inappropriate response if you're immersed in water. It's much more appropriate response if you're being approached by a lion and you've got to you know, do something like fight or run away. So um, that, that response, and particularly the loss of the ability to breath hold, uh, is um, absolutely uh, the primary danger associated with going into cold water. So the gasp response we've measured as two to three litres. The lethal dose of water into the lung, if it's salt water, is about one and a half litres. Just the first breath, therefore, you can cross that lethal dose for drowning. The good news is, uh, a bit like every other receptor in the body, that after that dynamic response, the cold receptors settle down into a new static response that's much lower. So you'll still feel cold, but you won't be gasping and hyperventilating the way you were when you first went in. And that adaptation of the responses um, takes about a minute to a minute and a half. It's the neurophysiological equivalent of it's okay once you're in, uh, which everyone promises you when you go near cold water, including me, I have to say. Um, but the really important thing is, therefore, what do you need to do in that first minute in order to maximize your chances of survival and what you sh mustn't do is start thrashing around waving your arms about trying to swim because that increases the chance of your airway being under the water when you've lost control of your breathing so the critical thing to do is to keep the airway clear of the water until you regain control of your breathing and your ability to breath hold and that'll take about a minute so it, you know, now you can see the connection, a particularly strong connection with the RNI. 
all that scientific understanding, all that neurophysiological insight uh, and physiological responses all fed directly into the Float to Live campaign. So be fit enough, be healthy enough, go in slowly. If you're going to do something like take, taking up open water swimming, do it incrementally, do it with a club, do it on a, in a safe place, do everything you need to do to minimise that cold shock response. And that was the message which um, we working with the RNLI and was put out from about 2014 under the Respect the Water campaign. You know, be aware of cold shock, be aware that it's potentially lethal. Um, and then, of course, the piece of information came along that nearly half of those people who fall into cold water had no intention of going in. So this is now, uh, you know, you're now saying, well, okay, well, what can we tell people um, who may well respect the water, but they had no option in this case, they've just gone in accidentally. And that's where you move on to, okay, well, what's the best thing to do when you find yourself in the water? Um, and that's where you go on to keep your airway clear of the water, fight your instinct to thrash around uh, until you get your breathing back under control. Float to live. There's been lots of unsolicited contacts from people um, saying that they heard the campaign of Float to Live and um, you know they think it saves their lives. Uh, the, the one that stuck with me was the Evans story because it was one of the first ones. And it was a young lad who um, you know had, had made, been aware of the Float to Live campaign and had, had, you know had adopted the right strategies. But the thing that was really touching was the the email contact from his father uh, that still, when I read it, makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. He said, you know, thank you for allowing me, me see my you know, son grow up, get a degree, fall in love, you know, and it sort of hammers home to you um, that this is, this is life-changing. Uh, you know, this is giving people, maybe particularly as a lot of it's a lot of young people that drown, you're giving people 70 or 80 years of life that they wouldn't otherwise have had. And that, you know, that has to be a good thing. If you find a purpose and a passion in life and it is as rewarding as the one I'm involved in and you're working with groups like the RNLI, you know, why would you stop doing that? It's just rewarding, it's an honour and a privilege to work with these organisations who are giving up their time to go and help others, which is, you know, incredible. Hello, this is Timothy Spall. You've been listening to the RNLI's 200 Voices Collection. To hear more remarkable stories, head to rnli.org slash 200 voices or subscribe to RNLI wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. 200 Voices is produced for the RNLI by Adventurous Audio Limited.